You lock those doors. Duck. It's Miller time. Dr. Miller, that is. I'm David Madeira, your host for It's Gordon Miller Time, and I'm joined by the aforementioned Dr. Miller in his uh, high and dry bunker there in Dallas, Pennsylvania. I heard you got a pretty big hit with the storm. Oh, that storm last week was awful. Our basement <laughs> flooded a good four or five inches, probably. Um, we didn't notice it till the next day, so it's kind of hard to tell, but we spent most of last uh, Sunday afternoon just drying all that stuff out. It's Wow. taking the better part of the week to get all that water out. We've had, that is rough. we've had friends that had four feet of water in their basement. So it's, uh, we, we on relatively speaking, we got by uh, a little bit easier than some. Uh, yeah. The street that I used to live on in Scranton, unfortunately a woman died uh, in the flood. I hadn't heard about that. That's really sad. Yeah. It was tragic. It was tragic. So um, you had mentioned that you've been reading a book. Yeah, well, so I've been digging into a lot of extra data science stuff, especially over the summer and the recent months, uh, just trying to work on some different projects, work on some different things, uh, building out my research um, capabilities, all that type of stuff. And there's a book that's been sitting uh, in my wish list for quite a while now, and I just haven't gotten around to it. I think I first learned about it from my dad when he was talking about taking his college statistics class uh, 40 years ago. And so it's an old book. It's an old book. Uh, I believe the copyright date on it is uh, 1954 or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, But it's the classic How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff. Um, And it's a great uh, just read on all the chicanery that goes on in statistical modeling, um, how newspapers report it, uh, all the different ways that you can kind of twist the angle on a particular issue and also just some really good advice on how to kind of combat that and recognize that um, as both uh, an on lay person and a lay person. Cool. This is one of my favorite topics. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of kind of coming to understand how statistics play a role in the manipulation of our minds so I'm I'm thrilled we're going to be talking about this because I yeah. think there's a great there's great so much done wrong in terms of reporting and thinking no. because of our inability to understand how statistics can be used. So where right. do you want to start? <clears throat> yeah, I guess we can just sort of jump right into it. I mean, one of the thing one of the stories that um, I was listening to the other day on another podcast that I really like called uh, Quantitude. Uh, it's a couple. If you're in, into learning about statistics, but you find it such a dry, boring subject, I would check out Quantitude. There are a couple of uh, statistics professors uh, that basically have created a comedy show out of talking about everything in the relevant to the non-relevant of statistical modeling and various topics around that. But I was listening to their podcast the other day, and he was bringing up uh, the story of his daughter uh, testing positive for COVID back in, I think, 2020 or 2021 or whatever it was. And he was basically trying to, and they, they, they sheltered and played, or they, I think they stayed in a hotel or something like that. It was over Christmas or something. 
anyhow, he was trying to make the point that, uh, and he was trying to explain to the audiences <laughs> that, look, you know, the fact that she tested positive and the test reads at 93% or whatever it was, doesn't mean that there's a 93% chance that she has COVID, right? Uh, this kind of gets back to the classic uh, problem of that, that Bayes' formula addresses, right? That the probability of A given B does not equal the probability of B given A. So if when it talks about it being a 93% um, positive test rate, it's basically saying how effective is it at detecting true positives um, as opposed to false positives. Right. And basically what you're doing is you're saying, all right, given that I have COVID, what is the likelihood that this test will uh, deem that I'm positive? Mm. What I'm really curious about, though, if you get a positive test, and what is what is the likelihood, given that I've tested positive for COVID, what is the likelihood that I actually have COVID? And I don't remember, and Bayes' formula, it gets into some statistical uh jargon um the, the actual formula is probability of a given b equals the probability of b given a times the probability of a over the probability of b so if your head just exploded ignore i'm gonna take that. your word for it i'm just gonna <laughs> let it be um but if your head exploded just uh ignore all of that basically the result came out to if you test positive you have about a 10 percent chance of actually having covid something like that um wow so it, it can be quite misleading <laughs> Uh, yeah. to just look at that 93% statistic and, and run with that. Right. Well, the uh, one of the examples they gave in the story uh, is about an election from way, way back uh, when, um, um, let's see, who was it? I was going to say Kennedy, but it's actually the other one, Roosevelt, mm-hmm. when FDR was running. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want you to I want you to see this because I think this is a really good example of the way statistics can be used. And I think it's a good jump off point for our discussion in terms of how easy it is for someone to blatantly misrepresent something that is uh, true, like factually accurate, but also not really the the whole story. So here's the here's the story. Only sampled point oh 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 nine nine percent of the cases. How much is it worth? Nothing. Nothing from the point of view of reason. Remember in nineteen hundred and thirty six there, the Literary Digest sampled 10 million people. And after sampling 10 million people as to how they would vote, they concluded that the electoral votes in November of that year would be 370 for Landon and 161 for Roosevelt. And they consulted 10 million. <laughs> What do you suppose we're going to get if we consult six or eight hundred? Did Landon become president? Anybody got an old Landon button just to remind us of these things? (laughs) (laughs) So I just thought that was just a terrific example of what you're talking about, how easy it is to just tweak something 
make it sound official. And then boom, all of a sudden you got a completely ridiculous, but, but it doesn't matter because, you know, that's what everybody's come to believe. Yeah. It's uh, it's quite telling how much this plays out in politics. Um, we, we've seen this, this play out uh, numerous times over the last few years with yeah. the, uh, COVID pandemic and the tyranny oh, that's yeah. kind of uh, emerged from that. But it, I really think there's some value in taking a step back. And most people don't understand how these numbers get generated, right? Uh, I think there's value in taking a step back and trying to think through a few uh, a few issues that um, we that 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 you might that that is as a layperson who doesn't know a lot of statistics might just be able to start questioning and uh, engaging in a little skepticism about the numbers that they see mm-hmm. popularly reported. Mm-hmm. So, so um, when you talk about polls, that that kind of makes me think about what we're seeing right now in the presidential election, where every it seems like virtually every story that you read is about this poll, that poll, this poll says this, this poll, uh, Trump is leading against former President Barack Obama in the polls. Like, th- th- we're just so inundated with all of these statistical models that, that mean nothing to us. But we're, we're told to believe that they mean everything, that they're the most important thing. Yeah, well, what was it? Back in the 2016 election, nobody predicted Trump to actually win this thing, win that election, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the actual traditional polling that people had trusted for decades uh, went right out the window. Um, and yet, and yet, we're still talking about them. I mean, the, yeah. everything I see, every news story is about. Well, this guy's up in the poll. This guy's up in the poll, yeah. and we learn nothing. Like literally nothing. Well, and there, it's worth mentioning that um, in the Austrian School of Economics um, and the methodology that's built out there. There's a pretty large skepticism of mathematics. Uh, I think sometimes uh, Austrian economists get caricatured as economists who don't like math, which is just not true, right? Like, I, I you know, I'm not that's your not, thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to brag, but I, but I, I know a fair amount of math, and I know how to do statistical modeling. I've done very high level causal modeling and everything else, but. It's more a skepticism of how uh, statistics and mathematics are used uh, to say things that are just logically or deductively untrue, or a better way to say this, just don't comport with common sense, right? Right. Um, I think that's important. The idea of common sense, like, does this thing, whatever it is, even make sense? You know, like that's that should be sort of the starting point for this. Yeah, well, and I think that's worth mentioning. Um, I mean, that's a that's a that's a really good first uh, heuristic and trying a rule of thumb and trying to uh, diagnose a statistic and try to assess a statistic to see if it's actually important uh, or if it means anything. And, you know, the book how to lie with statistics ends on a really really great quote uh from mark twain uh in life on the mississippi and it just says this in the space of 176 years the lower mississippi has shortened itself 242 miles that is an average of a trifle over one mile and a third per year therefore 
any calm person who is not blind or idiotic can see that in the old, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, Iralitic Silurian period, just a million years ago next November, the lower Mississippi River was upward of 1,300,000 miles long and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing rod. And by the same token, any person can see that 742 years from now, the lower Mississippi will be only a mile and three quarters long, and Cairo and New Orleans will have joined their streets together and be plodding comfortably along under a single mayor and a mutual board of aldermen. There is something fascinating about science. One gets such wholesale returns of conjecture out of such a trifling investment of fact. Indeed. Indeed, uh, the logical fallacies are so uh, prevalent, and of course, you know he was a he was a master of you know mocking and yeah. and making fun of, of foolish foolish things and and making making sense of of reality. So what are satirism? Yes, yeah. one of the greatest satirists of all time. <laughs> yeah, I think that he also said. I think another thing I heard, and and maybe it's not him. But I think it was um, something like it's it's harder to convince someone, it's easier to fool someone than than to convince them they've been fooled. Yeah, and and the um, the marketing people and the politicians, they really do play on this because once we're fooled, then we're just dug in. Like we just have to be right. We're yeah. afraid to be wrong or to admit we're wrong. Yeah, yeah, um, it's. There, there is an element of you know, personal pride, um, arrogance, um, narcissism, however you want to describe it, that are, enters into this process. Uh, and I mean, if we want to look at the last few years, uh, especially, I think that's what drove a lot of people to go along with the things that they did, because nobody wants to look like they were wrong or that they were dumb or that they were, you know, I mean... Right. People want to be correct. And that's why they listen to experts in the first place. Right. They, they feel like, oh, well, the people that, you know, spend all their time and money and resources studying these things should know the correct answer. Um, the problem is, is not all of those people agree either. Well, and they and, and some of them may have motives not to find the correct answer. Right. I mean, it's not it's not simply a matter of ignorance. It may it may be intentional. No. Uh, or, or they may not even know. I, I can think of an example for myself where um, in 2012, I had just started my radio program in Scranton, Pennsylvania from 94.3 FM, The Talker. And uh, Mitt Romney was running for president against Barack Obama. It was going to be, you know, he was running for, Obama was running for his second term. Mm -hmm. And I so desperately wanted to see him out of there that I allowed myself to be persuaded by statistics, the statistics being the number of people showing up at the um, Mitt Romney, <laughs> Romney rallies uh, just kept growing and growing and growing. And I wanted to believe. And so I, I was all in, we're going to win. And um, I don't remember whether I persuaded the station manager to let me do it or whether they asked me to do it. But in any case, I wound up doing a live broadcast on election night to usher in the new, <laughs> the new president. Mitt Romney. <laughs> and it was, it was the, it was the most horrible three hours of my life because we kicked off at 11 o'clock and way before, I'm sorry, eight o'clock. 
And way before we were supposed to wrap up at 11, it was quite obvious that Romney was going to lose. And I had to do live radio for three hours. And I really, it was a powerful lesson for me mm-hmm. because I did, I did learn to really check myself and say, am I, am I thinking this thing because I want it to be true? Is this just like feeding into my ego and so I'm going to believe it? Or, or does, the, do the, does the data actually back it up? Yeah, the technical term there is confirmation bias, right? It's yes, looking it's looking at information that confirms what you already believe. Right. Um, and this is a tendency I we had all, it, man. <laughs> Yeah, this is a tendency we all fall into. Um, and it's one of the biggest reasons to try to find ways to get out of your echo chamber. I mean, um, you know, I have colleagues and friends and other individuals that I disagree with radically, but I enjoy talking to because I at least, even if I don't agree with them, I at least get a better understanding of where they're coming from and how to think through uh, their potential, their potential objections. Um, Yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons I agree to do this show is because you and I don't agree on everything. No, we don't. I think it would be very boring if we both just said, (laughs) Oh yeah, we agree. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. All the time. Uh, cause it, cause I want to be challenged. I, I don't, I don't ever want to go back into that confirmation bias again. Yeah. Um, I think, um, there another big, and this is another big lesson that I kind of noted down, uh, and I'm drawing a lot from how to lie with statistics, but also some, some of my own experiences, but this, this is a good one. This is a good question. Right. And it's a question posed who says so. Right. And the idea of, mm-hmm. Is the individual that you're listening to, do they have an incentive to distort the truth even while being factual? Uh, Michael Malice has a um, good line. It's something I might I might butcher this, but it's basically uh, a lot of news reporters and politicians. They're factual, but they're not truthful. And I think that's a powerful way to describe it. Um, You can say things that are absolutely 100% uh, correct from a statistical point of view, and they still, they're still an outright lie, right? They're just yeah, like, the actual truth. Like the President Landon example. Like, oh, yeah. well, look, we've, we've surveyed a million people. We know we're accurate. And they, they just were wrong. Like, they, right. they didn't do it. But it's still, it's so common. Like, we just, it seems like, it seems like we've lost the ability to kind of think through and challenge these things? No, I think a couple of, and one big, one big uh, point when we're thinking about this question of who says so one, one big piece of advice is to look at, are they trying to legitimize the statement by, you know, attaching some big name to it, a university or a major figure or something along those lines without giving you any more details on what the actual breakdown of that particular statistic is. That should, that should make, that should be a red flag that should cause your ears to perk up and start asking a few questions. Um, Mm -hmm. There's several other things we can look at and we'll dig. I feel like we should dig into a few of these. Um, One is um, all right. Well, if they're talking about, if they're talking about averages, right. Well, what do they mean by averages, right? Do they? And there's basically three measures of centrality uh, in statistics. There's the mean, which is what we generally think of as the average, right? You add everything up, 
and then divide by the number of individuals. And that gives you some sort of an average, right? Uh, so three plus five um, plus 10 is 15. And then you divide by three and that gives you a mean average of five, right? Um, median is another uh, mechanism for centrality. Uh, and it's basically just the center value, right? It's if you have four, if you have five numbers um, listed in a row, so say five, six, 12, uh, 15, and 20, the median is going to be 12. It's the number that's right in the middle. Um, and the mode is uh, which number appears most often in a particular data set, right? Um, if we have uh, a series of 100 numbers and um, 77 appears more often than any other number in that in that series of numbers, then that is the mode uh, of that particular set of numbers. And this, these are things that you learn in basic math, right? right? And I think a lot of the times we forget what these things are, but... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but, we just think of average as just average. Yeah. And what they're really, what they really are, but different measures of central tendency. Um, oftentimes, uh, the one that I've always been taught to kind of report and focus on is the median, because uh, if you're really interested in the centrality of a set of data, you really want, you really want a figure that's not influenced um, by outliers most of the time. So a good example of this is income breakdowns. You know, you might have a series of a hundred people and the average income for them is, I don't know, $500,000. That doesn't necessarily, and when, we, when I say average here, I mean um, the, the mean, the actual arithmetic mean. And if, that, if I'm saying the mean is $500,000, you know, a lot of those people could be at the very bottom of the income distribution, right? A lot of them could be making twenty dollars or $30,000 a year. But then you have one or two people that are making a couple of million or three million or however much it is. And that those outliers jack up that average. So what the median does is looks it, it takes account of uh, all the individuals that are at the lower end of that income distribution. So you get a more accurate picture of what the median um, way medium uh, income is per year. And that median income might be as opposed to the mean of five hundred thousand might be like. 50 or 60,000, right? Depending on what the numbers in that data set are. <clears throat> Which is a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's one thing to keep and keep, uh, be aware of uh, that, you know, which, and, and this kind of gets to a bigger point too. It, it gets to a point about influential individuals that know how to use statistics, right? Will pick, oftentimes pick figures that make their case the strongest, for them. And that's not always done uh, in a malicious fashion. Sometimes it is. Um, I think a lot of the times what the corporate press and politicians do, maybe maybe malicious is the wrong word, but um, intentional, intentionally biased way uh, that they'll pick certain figures that make whatever their particular argument is uh, look better or look correct. Um, and if you dig into those numbers a little bit more, they're, they're oftentimes not, they don't, they don't mean what they say they mean, or, you know, and a lot of times, like we pointed out before, they're not uh, outright lies or no. they are, they are lies, but they're, they're not outright. Um, uh, they're not outright being outright incorrect. They're, they're not inaccurate. Inaccurate. That's about They're not word. inaccurate, but the application is to, persuade you of something that isn't that isn't so 
I'm reminded of the the guy who was considered to be sort of the um, the what would be the pioneer. I think he's been called the the father of public relations. And I'm reminded of a a campaign that he did a while ago where he was actually trying to get people to look at, uh, specifically women, trying to get them to look at cigarette smoking Mm -hmm. as a desirable thing. And uh, so he was using statistics uh, that were designed to create uh, an impression that would you know, lead people to believe things that weren't true. One of the things that he did uh, in this in this effort was to create a campaign where he he basically made it uh, like a really women's liberation idea to have cigarettes, and that if you if you smoked, that was how you could demonstrate that you had been freed. And they and they came up with all these bogus things to try to create an environment where people were persuaded, you know, to to go ahead and smoke. Women specifically were persuaded to go ahead and smoke because they they thought, okay, this is gonna this is gonna make me free. <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, and this is something that you know. Uh, Corporations, they, I mean, they have a natural tendency to advertise in a way that's going to uh, drive their sales. And there's nothing, I mean, th- th- this gets into a larger debate about what's what's actually ethical, what's moral and stuff. And we, as Christians, we have our own views on that. We don't want to like mislead people or trick people into buying something that they shouldn't buy or hurt their health or anything like that. Um, but from a purely like disengaged uh, perspective, like a libertarian perspective, right? Um, and th- and this is something that I think we will agree on as far as libertarianism and conservatism go. That libertarianism isn't sufficient for a worldview, right? Um, or conservatism isn't sufficient for a worldview, or liberalism, for that matter, isn't sufficient for a worldview, right? It's a matter. It, those, those philosophies more or less deal with how should the state, what 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 should our relationship to the state be? Um, but that's as far as it goes. And so when we get into the ethical questions and stuff, ethics do play into um, the application of a particular libertarian vision or a conservative vision or a liberal vision or whatever it might be. Um, but those, but those are two separate, um, two separate points of view. Well, I would go so far as to say that um, there's a, even though I'm conservative and I want to dominate, you know, the political scene and make sure that my ideas get implemented. Um, I, I see it as incredibly valuable to have people with different viewpoints vying for that. Because again, that's a, in my opinion, that's a very conservative idea is that mm-hmm. you're, you're going to get the best answer by having people who disagree, talk it out, not fight it out, not shoot it out, but talk it out and find a, a common ground, a consensus, uh, because I'm not always right. I thought Mitt Romney was going to win in 2012. Indeed. <clears throat> Indeed. Yeah. Um, you know, 
and and you know this is something and this is and it's a little bit of a side topic and i don't want to go down the, this road today but i mean this is why institution institutions of free speech regardless of who is involved in those uh, particular um regardless of who's who is under analysis mm-hmm. that those institutions are so incredibly vi- vital uh, regardless of what you think about the constitutionality or anything along those lines like i i'm, I'm talking beyond just um the first amendment rule right that the actual principle of free speech is what matters not necessarily what uh the legal definition is um although that's that and again that's a lot of um that, that's a lot of side content that i don't want to get into tonight but it does uh it does speak uh to this issue the, the fundamental issue of this episode uh when we're looking at statistics that we need to hear from not just the experts on statistics right um or you know maybe not even just the experts on the statistics but just because there's a bunch of numbers and a lot of math and a lot of percentages thrown around doesn't mean that they're right yeah no in fact um if there isn't some sort of common sense basis, then I think it's a warning sign. If someone's completely dependent on statistics, just citing statistics and not bringing anything else in, it's kind of a warning sign that, hey, you know, this isn't a well-rounded, well-thought-out argument. Yeah. um, Another element here that I wanted to touch on is this idea of visualizations as well and how the truth can get distorted uh, based on the graphs that you use and how you structure those graphs and how you scale in on them. On your, I'm sure you're pulling up an example right now. To kind I, of I'm actually thinking this. of one. I don't know that I'll be able to pull it up quickly, but, but it was right at the beginning of COVID, and they did these maps of the United States showing where the COVID cases were. And they had the whole map of the U.S. I'm sure I won't be able to find it quickly. But I remember this in March of 2020, seeing this and thinking how shockingly bad the design was of these graphs because they showed the state of Pennsylvania and they showed two cases. But the size they chose to represent those two cases basically covered the entire state. And, and then in Washington, D.C., there were set whatever, you know, I'm, I'm sort of not remembering all the details, but it was just shockingly bad use of graphic images to convey ideas. Now, infographics can be tremendously helpful mm-hmm. yeah. to visualize ideas if they're done properly. If they're but done properly was, and you're not and you don't go into it with an agenda. Right. Well, and, and here's another example, actually, from the same thing. Remember, they said that they they wanted to flatten the curve. Right. So they, yeah, yeah, they were saying that, that it's idea, rising. Yeah. Trying it's to trying to reduce the number of people who are on ventilators. Right. Right. At, at a given time. But, yeah. but the but the hidden truth in that was that was actually quite accurate and factual was all they were going to do was spread it out. There was no mm-hmm. effort or belief that they could reduce the number at that time. They had no right. effective treatments, didn't even know what was for sure causing it. I mean, we now know that they kind of did, but. No. They weren't telling us, no. but the I, I said at the time I said this is this is a really great graphic because it tells you the truth, but the narrative they put with it never did explain that. Which is, look, we're don't get mad at your neighbor because he's not going to kill your grandma. The flatten the curve thing is not about having less; it's just about spreading them out. So as you said, you didn't have so many people needing 
you know, intense medical interventions that wouldn't necessarily be available. Right. That's a great example of a graphic that actually told the truth, but there wasn't like no one was pointing this out that, oh, yeah, look, we're not we're not getting the numbers down. There was and I've been aware I've been aware of this uh, graphical issue for a while, uh, just through my own studies. But one of the ones that was pointed out in this book uh, had a lot of statistics that I found particularly interesting was the idea of showing of scaling a visual image. So um, they were basically showing that, you know, somebody might make sixty dollars, whereas another person makes thirty dollars and you can draw Mm -hmm. one person as two times as high as the other one but when you scale that picture you're not just increasing the height you're also increasing the width and if you look at it in a 3d space you're also increasing the length so if it's two times as high then the bigger picture is actually not two times bigger in a 2d space it's four times bigger in a 3d Mm. space Mm -hmm. it's eight times bigger which gives Mm. most people the common person common misperception that oh this is a much bigger difference than we actually than it actually is, even if that number is listed under those two pictures. Right. Yeah. So by the way, while you were doing that, thanks for that. Uh, While you were doing that, I did find the the post that Mm -hmm. I had made at the time showing how this was being done to create a a timeline that created a certain impression. But the same number of people were going to always going to have the disease, no matter what we we did in you know in any other way. It was always going to be a really big problem, and there was nothing that anyone could do uh, to to make it stop because it was the nature of the disease. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So visualizations are a uh, a common tactic that are that's used intentionally to deceive, but it. But it can't even be unintentional if you're not if the person who's putting together that graphic is not giving uh, serious enough thought to how they're developing their axes or how they're representing a particular trend. Right. Um, I think a more a trickier problem for a lot of people is honestly the idea of causation. So everybody is familiar with the phrase correlation does not equal causation. But what does that phrase actually mean? So there's a useful model that, uh, that we use when we're doing causal inference uh, called DAG models. They're called directed acyclical graphs. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. Basically what it, what it does is it draws relationships between different variables and tries to see what the direct relationships are, what the indirect relationships are, and if there's some third-party variable that's driving uh, a particular change. Um, the but the basic idea here is you're trying to overcome uh, one big problem within uh, with in doing causal inference, and that's uh, the idea of spurious correlations, right? So spurious correlations are those correlations that absolutely 100% do exist, but it's clear, I mean, by any reasonable person, that factor X did not cause factor Y. In fact, there's probably some third variable that we're not thinking of that causes factor Y, right? Uh, so some popular ones, I just did a quick look up because I always have trouble thinking up good examples of spurious correlation on the spot. Um, but you can find data that correlates U.S. spending on science, science space, and technology 
and suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation, right? Thanks. Uh, number, of people, number of people who drowned by falling into a pool is correlated with the number of films that Nicolas Cage appeared in. Uh, I mean, and, and it's just clear that those things are not actually related in any meaningful way. Um, it comes a little bit less clear and it becomes a little bit, um, and, and this is where it gets tricky when you're doing causal inferences, just because you find relationships between two variables, even if they might plausibly be related, doesn't necessarily mean they are. Um, one, one way that I've heard this explained uh, is that uh, correlation is necessary, but not sufficient to determine causation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're dealing with a lot of unseen. And when you're, when you're arguing for causation, the reason it's cause, called causal inference and not causal deduction is because you can't usually deduce causation unless you're uh, engaged in a pure experimental laboratory. The best right. you can do is infer it. Um, and so there's a lot of cool uh techniques to try to suss, suss actual causal effects out. Uh, a really good book on this, if anyone is interested, um, comes from my former uh, professor dissertation. He was on my dissertation committee, uh, Scott Cunningham. And the name of that book is Causal Inference, uh, the Remix, uh, the Mixtape. Um, so I would definitely encourage you to check that book out. It's free on his website, or at least at one point it was. Uh, and he goes through, walks through a lot of those different methods if you're interested in digging into some of that stuff. But um, causation is a causation is a big field of study. And oftentimes what we're doing when we engage in causal inference is presenting enough evidence to convince someone else that there actually is a causal effect. We never know for certain that there actually is a causal effect. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's probably the most important heuristic is that and and i think it's probably never been better illustrated than the last couple of years it it feels to me like a lot of people have come to just doubt experts and i'm not saying that is a good thing but i think for for a long time we we just sort of got comfortable with the idea that well you know the doctor knows best and that's you know that's just not a great idea like that's a great way to get taken advantage of. Yeah, I think I think the psychology uh, or the philosophy rather of doctor knows best <clears throat> is fine if you're not just listening to one doctor. If you don't know enough about that particular issue, <clears throat> don't just take one doctor's word for it. Con- think, consider what that doctor's incentives are, uh, what that doctor's training is. Um, and then find somebody who disagrees with that doctor and see which one can boil it down for you and makes more sense to you. Ultimately, we're getting back to common sense. Um, do the, and, you know, you, you definitely want to consider the, repu- the, the reputableness of a given doctor, but there's plenty of reputable doctors that, for instance, that didn't agree um, with uh, the COVID tyranny, right? right. Um, and they were laughed out of academia. Yeah, um, or, or worse, or worse, they lost their jobs or yeah. you know, blacklisted or any right. number of things. Um, it, it's just, it, it, and I don't want to just pick on COVID, but it's the most relevant thing to our time right now. Um, yeah. But there's plenty of other examples where this holds, right? Uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneurship professor, a management professor, right? I wouldn't expect you to take 
everything I say is gospel truth about entrepreneurship or management, right? I've studied this for several years now. I've been involved in a couple of smaller entrepreneurial ventures, uh, not not starting businesses, but you know, doing some entrepreneurial things with freelancing and this podcast and other projects. Um, and I've studied it quite extensively. But there's plenty of people in my own field that don't agree with me, right? Um, and there's plenty of people that I don't agree with, right? That the best we can do is make arguments working from a particular philosophical perspective and people who are listening from the outside, you know, ultimately it's your responsibility to make up your own mind. Who, who do yeah. You and I think, a, I think a healthy um, skepticism is good and can be productive, but cynicism, Oh, everybody's lying. All advertising is false. You know, yeah. every politician lies. Well, you might not agree with that one. <laughs> I mean, you um, might agree with that. One. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think every politician lies. I think the institutions, the incentives are there. The, the incentives are for most politicians to lie. Yeah, the incentives are strong to lie. Yeah, they're very, very strong. I was recounting to uh, some students the other day about an experience I had when I was running for state senate in northeastern Pennsylvania, and at the time, the uh, explosion of development around fracking and natural gas was everywhere in the news and the headlines. And I had people who approached me and said, hey, if you become senator, will you help us? And I said, well, help you what? And they said, well, years ago, we signed leases on our property for, and I'm, I'm making up the numbers here, but 25 cents uh, a unit for natural gas, if they ever find natural gas on our property, you know, 25 cents a unit is what we would get. But now it's going for $37 a unit. And there are people who just signed leases last week and they're getting $37 a unit and it's not fair. I should be getting the same that they get. And, and I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a popular move, but I said, I, I don't, I don't agree with you. Like you signed the agreement and you did it fully knowing that you were constraining future choices by doing that. And so I don't think the state has a role in intervening in that. If there was some injustice, if they were taking natural gas off your property and not paying you, well, then, yes, contract enforcement would be a valid concern for the well, state. And there's, and there's also and, th and there's also the more the thornier issue of eminent domain in that in, in those contexts. But. Well, no, these were these were lease grants. So the so the owners of the property were able to get, you know, they were selling their mineral rights, which is not not eminent domain. No, but, but my point being is that they are just taking the property uh, underneath and not and not paying them for. A particular oh, yeah. Contract. No. And that's a right. Yeah, that's an eminent um, domain contractual obligation. No. My point is that uh, that you. There are incentives for politicians to say, yes, of course, right, I'm gonna, right, right. it's not fair. I'm going to, you know, right. and, and it's it's factually fair because you signed the agreement. Right. It, yeah. It's like, no, a student, it's like a student loan, like oh, well, it's, lending, you know, well, yeah, it's bad and, and we should fix it. But the solution isn't to pretend that you didn't sign a, a promissory note to pay it back. Yeah, uh, the student student loans just get into thornier issue. I think we've done an episode on this. If not, we should do an episode on the student loan stuff. Um, 
I think my my views on that are a little bit more nuanced. I generally take your viewpoint on this, and you know, I'm also coming from the perspective of someone who's taken out confirmation uh, pretty, bias, pretty, right? Pretty, pretty substantial student loans, right? But, I have no I have no stake in this other than yeah, that yeah. I will have to pay for someone else's yeah. college education, even though I've already paid mine off. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, right? And this is the, the student loan question is trickier because primarily because the individuals who have the, 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 the institution that owns these loans are the federal government, right? And the financiers of the federal government are the taxpayers. Um, the federal government also created this situation in the first place. Absolutely. Got a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, dumb teenagers to yep, induced know, a lot of people to think that their um, only path to success was a uh, higher ed. And my, and my and I and I'm opposed to student loan forgiveness, <clears throat> just for the record. But um, on principle, on principle, but I could actually see a libertarian argument being, and I have seen a libertarian argument being made, and it's compelling to me, except that it's not really realistic. Um, and you would argue that most libertarian, but that's a whole other thing. But the uh, but the the basic argument is that you know the federal government o- o- owns this debt. Um, it's going to be taxed regardless of whether or not they forgive forgive the debt. The money's already spent. And why should individuals who are you know basically lied to? Um, have to pay back something to the federal government. And I would almost be on board with student loan forgiveness if they got rid of giving out student loans in the first place. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, if you want to be for, right. I'd be for open immigration if we didn't have a welfare state. Like I I would be all for it. I'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard heard that argument too. And there's, there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. to, that I would object to on those grounds. Um, but the, the bigger issue to me with student loans specifically is that they're not going to stop if they pay off. They're not. They're not. They're not getting rid of the actual. Uh, right. Pernicious they're issue, incentivizing right? the moral hazard. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and it's just not. It's just not a good idea in the long run. It's not a healthy solution in the long run because what you're going to do is increase the rate of student loans that are taken out. Um, well, and that's you, where we're at. I mean, the numbers are so high now compared to what they were when I was in graduate school, the numbers of the amount of student debt that is, that is just hanging out there and it's crushing us. Like it's just, I mean, I was just talking to my wife the other night. I'm like, we have to stop accepting inflation as just like, Oh, well, okay. It's up another 20%. We we can't, we can't do this. This is not good. No. Yeah. Um, and I mean, those, those statistics, right. Um, you know, the, that there are some, there are some statistics about student loans that get blown up or, you know, we're only look or that only look at one particular angle sure. of, of the sure. problem, uh, without considering the larger context of what this ultimately means. Um, but thinking more into statistics more generally, I think people just get so overwhelmed by large numbers, especially when it comes to uh, the political world and the economic world that $20 trillion in debt or now, now it's what 30 trillion, a little over $30 trillion in debt. I haven't checked the debt clock recently, but um, it's bad, but people don't have a way to conceptualize that. Right. 
uh, people can't wrap their heads around how much money that actually is. And thankfully, there have been um, some useful organizations that have given, again, given visualizations and based on, you know, who they are, you can, you should look at them skeptically and think through, all right, what are they trying to um, advocate for? But it's quite telling when, yeah, $32 trillion, that's insane. Uh, that doesn't even account unfunded liabilities. I think once you start accounting in, um, you know, unpaid social security or unpaid Medicaid, Medicare, it's it bad. jumps. It jumps to well over a hundred trillion. So I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's so bad. It's so um, bad. Oh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's some really interesting graph graphics that show the scale of this, and that, and that's and that's a good and that's a good example of where visualizations can be useful if you're trying to approach the question honestly and you're not trying uh, to, for lack of a better term, lie uh, about right. the, about the situation. Um, right. And I think one of the, I, I can't remember who it was. It was like the tax foundation or something like that. Some organization like that uh, basically showed that if you stack dollar bills up, it would, it would, <laughs> it would go to like the sun and back several times over or something like that. Oh, it, it was ridiculous. Yeah. It's so, it's so disheartening. It really is uh, sad and frustrating to see the, the kind of dominance that this debt and indebtedness has in our lives. And I, I actually think it's very relevant to the conversation we're having because that's how we got there, right? Was people, instead of saying, wait a minute, you can't just give stuff away for free just because somebody demands it and everything still be okay. You got to, I don't know if you're familiar with Rudyard Kipling's The Gods of the Copybook Headings. I've heard of it. Yeah. I think but it's a, it. it's a little, it's a little short story by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, it just talks about how the things that just make sense are important to, to focus on, not just pretend that, oh, well, you know, well, we, it's a new age. We, you know, we, we don't have these problems anymore. The old rules don't apply. No gravity still pulls you down and water is still wet. And recognizing that is actually it's actually quite freeing no. because then because then you actually can deal with the world that you're in instead of just pretending that something better is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think there are unhealthy levels of optimism and unhealthy, unhealthy levels of pessimism. Um, like many questions, walking some sort of center road is probably the most ideal. Um, right. Now, what 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 you mean by center road can mean a lot of different things. What are you what are you defining as the extremes, right? Uh, this gets this actually gets into another issue. Looking at statistics, right? Uh, how how are you defining your variables, or how are you defining what you're including and what you're not including? Um, there's a really good example looking at how census figures are calculated uh, from one decade to the next, and uh, what what they're counting as who they're counting in a particular group or are they counting? I don't remember one example um, from the book was, you know, and, and I don't remember the exact years, but they counted, they, they had a different definition of farms in like the 1930s than they did in the 1940s. So it looked like the figure was much larger, but in reality it was just a definitional difference. Um, yeah. And you see a lot of those types of things, or you see issues where um, people will, uh, it's what we call self-reporting bias and taking surveys and stuff because people don't want to give 
uh, answers or information that uh, reflects unfavorably on them. So you have to consider uh, the potential biases there as well. Right. Yeah. They don't want to look bad. They, uh, this is, I think, why a lot of political polling is wrong, because if the media is picking on one person and then they come and ask you a question, well, do you what do you think about that person? You're like, well, I know what I'm supposed to think about it. So I'll just go along with that. I don't I don't need the hassle. You know, fine. Yeah, no, I think it's not. And then later on, you find out. In fact, I was thinking about that when we were, when we were talking earlier about just polling in general. So much of the statistical information that's out there about what we think, what Americans think, yeah. is is manipulated by virtue of the question they ask. You know, yeah. they, they know how to do this. They know how to change the question to create a certain result. And campaigns do it all the time. They have their public polls that they cite. And then they have their internal polls. Those are the ones you really want to see because that's where they're asking the hard questions to try to get to the truth so that they can adjust the levers of the campaign to make it work. But the ones they release, they're almost always designed to create a certain impression. They're what we call push polls in the industry. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really disheartening when organizations, uh, do this. Um, and a lot of the times I think in our current climate, it's oftentimes intentional, but I think if I had to summarize, the lessons from tonight, especially when you're looking at a statistical number or percentage. Oh, by the way, percentages are a good one uh, to uh, question a lot because, you know, you might say a, there was a 100% increase, right? Well, you know, if you're talking about an absolute of two to four, then, you know, you're, you have a total increase of two, right? Like 100% makes it sound a lot larger right, than right. it actually It sure is. does. Um, but if I had to summarize all of the, what we've talked about tonight, right, pay attention to who's giving the statistic, um, pay attention to what's missing about the context, pay attention to the definitions that they're using, right? Um, pay attention and pay attention to um, the, the representativeness of their sample, right? Who are they actually sampling? Who, who, who are the individuals under in question here. Um, who are we talking about ultimately? If we're going to say that 97% of Americans um, support one candidate or the other, which 90, which Americans, right? Uh, which Americans are you actually pulling in that case? And then ultimately, and this is what it all comes down to, right? Is validate any statistic that you see with common sense. And if common sense tells you to go that it's wrong, that doesn't necessarily mean that statistic is wrong and that they're lying, but it should introduce a very healthy amount of skepticism uh, into your thinking. And that should drive you to actually go look that up and dig deeper into it. You may find that, well, I need to revise the way that I think about the world, but probably 99 times out of a hundred, if it's defying common sense, there's a good reason for that. Um, yeah. A good example of this is um, only think about minimum wage uh, laws. And one of the kind of key um, tenets of Austrian economics is that that is something, if that is something is logically true and the assumptions hold, then it's, it's true, right? Like you can deduce that truth if the assumptions are true. Just because I find some empirical result that shows that minimum wage didn't increase unemployment or didn't increase prices, does 
what you should be doing there is questioning what's wrong either with what uh, either with the methodology or the sample or is there some third factor that's driving those results right maybe this maybe the researchers aren't being you know intentionally misleading um, I think oftentimes the, the the famous minimum wage study is the Cardin Kruger study from the 90s uh, and this was the one that first found like a non-effect and they and was, there's a lot of different things that were wrong with it um, and we could dig into the criticisms of that another time but I think the bigger issue for me and and I as I understand it, the researchers never made the strong claims that the corporate press and Bill Clinton and others in the administration and the and political world at the time were making. Um, they just basically showed, hey, that there's this effect. Um, now, you might question why did they do that study in the first place and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, at least with the minimum wage, um, largely... Uh, increases in the minimum wage lag increases in the real wage, right? The federal government is keeping up with increases yeah, right. in the real wage. Right. So. I, I just have a practical one that I would add to this that I have found over the years of doing reporting and analysis of news is that almost always, not always anymore, but almost always, if you're reading a news story, somewhere in the body of the story is an admission that there's weaknesses, but it's usually buried towards the end. So one of the things that I have made it a fairly common practice of doing is I start, I read the headline, and then I skim down, I skip down to the last two or three paragraphs no. and I read it because often the admission that you need to put the headline in context is in the story so that they can honestly say, well, we know we we talked about that, we mentioned that. But it's buried so deep because statistically, if I may use the statistic, what we know is that the further down you put whatever the information is in a news story, the less number of people are going to read it until you get to the bottom when maybe only 7, 10, 12 percent of people are going to read the whole article. And therefore, yeah. you've, quote, told the truth, but not really, right. because you've created an impression, you've reinforced the impression. Right. And then at the end, you've admitted, well, that's actually not, we don't really know that, but you've buried it so far that you may as well not have said it at all. So read the stories upside down, basically. Well, we I'm can, saying. and I could, you know, give a little bit of revelation to how the sausage is made, right? Especially with an academic article. Um, and this is a, this is a good thing for, I think, academic researchers to keep in mind is be truthful in your abstracts, right? Don't over claim things that aren't there. Um, don't, don't make very strong claims when there are serious limitations to your study, but, but there's always this incentive, especially within academia to publish your article. And oftentimes in order to get your article published, you have to have a big enough contribution. What is big enough? Uh, oftentimes better than the next guy. Right. right. Um, and I, and I remember, being uh told um during my grad studies and it's, isn't a this is a very good strategic point just in writing an article that you know you want to list some limitations but you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to pull the teeth out of your own paper right? right so there's often times an incentive and it's and if there's a really major limitation then you definitely need to yeah. uh, address that but you also want to it's also a delicate tightrope walk of trying to please reviewers and not draw attention to things that may or may not be that important. Right. 
Um, and you're right. I mean, most people aren't going to read the limitations section on a on some random research article, right? They're going to see whatever the headline is or whatever the abstract is. If you get a really dedicated reader outside of a- academia, they might read the introduction and the conclusion and skim the rest of it. But they're probably not digging into a thorough methodological critique of that paper. <laughs> right. right. Um, and it doesn't even matter if they're not an expert. It's just yeah. the limitations of time are such that there's so much research that you can't really do that. Yeah. And I don't want to, and even as an academic, most academics don't do that, right? They skim papers right. and they try to get right. the idea That's of the paper. Point. But, um, but the, the other issue here is, and I don't fault academics for this, right? And this, this actually brings up questions about the institution of peer reviewed research. And are there some changes that need to be made? Do we need to start seeking a different kind of structure? Because in theory, peer reviewed research sounds like a good thing, right? Uh, that you have especially a double blind study, right? That you have, you don't have the reviewers, the reviewers don't know who the person is. Um, and the person submitting the article doesn't know who the reviewers are. So um, you're, you're getting like this anonymous, anonymized feedback and anonymized responses, right? Uh, the only one that's really managing the process overall is the editor. Um, unfortunately, this creates some really perverse incentives to, without getting too far into it, creates a lot of perverse incentives to try to mitigate potential issues with a paper because you don't know who's seeing it and you don't know um, what they might bring up. You have to try to play to a variety of different audiences. And this unfortunately sometimes reduces the quality of the work under question. Or you get a situation where reviewers knowing that the person doesn't know who they are can be sometimes a little bit ridiculous and right. uh, insist on things that just aren't that important. Because the people doing the reviews are human too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it, right? We're dealing with fallen human beings. Yeah. And I don't know that there is a better structure than the current academic publishing structure, but I think it's a worth, it's at least worth considering if uh, there is a reform. Yeah. yeah, there's some reform possible there that would make uh, things better, but there will all, there will always be problems, right? And this maybe, gets- maybe there's somebody out there that we could get on the show to talk about that. You know, someone who's looked at this. I think that might be an interesting yeah, topic I mean, for love, discussion I, because I don't know how I would go about doing it, but I would love to get Jordan Peterson on here because I know he's working. On oh a, yeah, on sure. A, on a different school, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, that would be, be interesting. I don't, uh, I don't have that connection, so that'll uh, have to be you. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, I'd have to, I have to talk the right person. I mean, I, I subscribe to the Daily Wire, so you know. <laughs> there's also, there's also the issue of, uh, you know, I mean, scale and timing and everything else. Sure. But, um, well, he's, uh, I, I, my wife told me that he's been uh, censured, I guess, by his uh, credentialing organization, and they've uh, demanded that he undergo reeducation. So rather than fight it, he's going to undergo the re-education and then expose it, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which I think is great. I think it's great. Indeed. All right. Well, it's good talking to you. I appreciate yeah, this um, topic. This one of my favorites is being able to look at something and look at it critically without being cynical right. and you know, gain, gain the truth from it without just completely right. dismissing it or, or buying it hook, line, and sinker and then getting all worked up about it. 
Well, and to end on a statistical note, I'm 100% positive that everyone listening to this podcast will now know how to detect statistical lies. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks. I'll see you soon. All right. See you, David. Take care. All right, thanks for enjoying another instance of Gordon Miller Time. For more on this podcast, please check out our website. It's gordonmillertime.com. Also, contact us via hosts at itsgordonmillertime.com. Follow us on Facebook and subscribe to our channels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Substack, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, please join us on the next episode for further discussions that will help you question your assumptions, explore new ideas, and think more entrepreneurially. And thanks for listening.